Welcome to Influence Me, a series of podcasts where the prime focus is leadership. I'm Assistant Commissioner Andrew Short, and I'm going to be hosting a series of podcasts where I get to interview a variety of guests, both internal and external to QFES. The topic is something extremely important to us, and one that is central to the success of QFES. I want to talk with these guests about leadership, and I want to learn more about leadership from the thoughts and experiences of others. I want to be influenced. Today's guest, Jason Satori, is currently based in the Democratic Republic of the Congo. Jason is the Chief Officer of the United Nations' largest fire service and has held this position since leaving Queensland Foreign Emergency in 2016. Jason has degrees in Applied Leadership, Emergency and Disaster Management, Fire Science and a Masters of Emergency Management. Furthermore, Jason is a member of the IFE, which is the International Fire Engineers Association and sits on the board of the management advisory team of JOIF, which is a peak body within the petro and gas industry. Jason takes every opportunity to develop his leadership skills and has spoken at several international conferences about leadership and the challenges his current situation presents. In 2019, Jason was appointed as a senior coordinator for the Tactical Operations Centre for the Ebola Emergency Response a position he held for several months before returning to his normal role. Jason, it's for me, it's been uh, intriguing to watch. And of course, I've had to watch this remotely. Your career within the United Nations from the start back in 2016, and we had a lot of discussion about your choice of what you were going to do when, when you had this opportunity come to you. Now, it's been about four years, and, and by now, uh, I imagine that you've been exposed to and been part of many situations, probably good and bad, challenging uh, uh, situations which have probably stretched you. And today I note that you wanted to talk about that transition from junior leader to senior leader. So Jason, it's just great to have you online for this discussion. Yeah, thanks Andrew. Look, thanks very much for the opportunity. I've enjoyed listening to the, the series of these chats so far and I'm really excited to join in. And you're, you're right, the opportunity I had in 2016 when I came back, you know, it probably, I thought it was going to be the run-of-the-mill thing that I'd experienced one year before, but I'd be given uh, excellent opportunities to, to step up from, from the middle management in, into senior management over the last four years. So if I ask you the question, uh, what's, in what way have you been forced to change or grow? in terms of your leadership? What, what sort of things would you say to me? Well, Andrew, the, the word grow is an exceptional word and the former commissioner, uh, Katarina Carroll, her advice to me when I, when I left QFES was go and grow. And I've taken that advice re really well and I believe that was inf you know, advice you gave me as well. But what I found, Andrew, is that I was pretty comfortable in my contracted role, but when I was given the opportunity to, to grow, and uh, step up in, into a higher level role in the organization, I realized that I probably didn't know as much as I thought I did. And, and I mean that by being exposed to extremely senior leaders in the, in the United Nations and looking at them and saying, wow, I'm a bit, I'm a bit, behind, the, bit behind the ball here. Uh, but that gave me the opportunity to understand what I did and didn't know and then find out what I should know and then give myself the capability and the opportunities to to grow into the role. Can you talk about, you, 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 you've acknowledged that 
uh, at the very start, you had people around you saying growth is a fundamental part of this journey. Can you give me a couple of examples or an example of a situation that's occurred, that you've been involved in as a leader, particularly you know, moving into a more senior role that really puts you in a moment where maybe you had to do something different, maybe you had to check yourself, maybe you had to go well out of your comfort zone. Does anything come to mind? Yeah, there's there's a, a few, and but going out of your comfort zone is is part of that growth, I believe, and it's part of the adaptive leadership model. You know, last year, as you mentioned in the intro, I was the so the, the coordinator of the Tactical Operations Center, which was a UN, United Nations name for the incident management team for the Ebola response. But the audience that I was then involved in was senior uh, diplomats, ambassadors. Uh, the head of the World Health Organization, believe it or not, the Archbishop of Canterbury, Alex Azor, who is the Secretary of Health and Human Resources for the United States. So I've now been thrust into a room where, although I'm great at, uh, sorry, I'm very good at uh, incident management, I'm now at a level that I'd never been exposed to. And when my boss turns around and says, so Jason will answer those questions, you really have to then, you know, <laughs> yeah, you yeah. really at that point have to say, well, he's put faith in me, don't let him down, but also don't let yourself yeah. down. You know? Yeah. So yeah. That, that, that's a quick one that comes to, comes to mind. And, and certainly when you are thrust into the, that the Ebola emergency response, were there things that not caught you by surprise that, yeah, had you catching yourself and thinking, I need to, I need to think further about this. Or I need to think of another way to deal with this because you would have been dealing with people outside your normal network, I'd imagine. Yes, certainly, Andrew. So you know, just a quick rundown on that, just that operation, which was was a huge operation over a large area of responsibility. But we had thirty three different United Nations entities involved from World Health Organization, UNICEF, the list goes on and on, OCHA, all of those sorts of people. But we also had the, the host government, which was, so their main players here was, of course, the Ministry of Health, and they, they took the lead in the response. We had uh, the PNC, which is the national police. We had the, the military because we were working in a war zone, in a very, very active war zone, unfortunately. And because of the requirement to track people that may have contacted the Ebola, uh, we're also working with the ANR, which is the Australian equivalent to ASIO. But then we also have a language barrier. Swahili is the main language in that area, then French, then Nande, and then finally English. Well, I only speak English. So you can imagine sitting in a room where you're trying to coordinate the response of over 40 agencies and it has to be translated five times you know but we all had the common goal and, and it doesn't matter what role you're doing in a leadership thing as long as you know the role you, you can you can find the plan and get people on board and it took a long time it, it probably took about six weeks for for us to build the trust amongst all of those agencies first and that's where we really started seeing tangible results with with that with that situation playing out and the need to be able to connect to people and you've spoken about the language barriers um certainly yes. i'd imagine diplomacy would have played a role here now i'm going to go out on a limb here and say that um you as a leader jason for me has always been someone who's been uh, straight up 
and uh, honest, probably to a degree which would make people uncomfortable. Now, I'd imagine that, that given the situation that you've been in, you had to broaden yourself out in terms of uh, seeing that maybe just being direct wasn't always the the path to take. Can you can you talk to that in terms of Certainly, that that, journey, yeah. that that personal journey you've been on, and that in that seeing that maybe just going straight at this person and seeking support or seeking agreement may not work. Can you talk to that? Yeah, certainly, Andrew. I like to describe it as I wear my heart on my sleeve. It is a journey. It's, traveling back here was a personal journey and a professional journey, of course. But yeah, you're right. You can't sit in a room and it's, you also have to take the cultural differences and out of those 40-odd uh, agencies I spoke about, many of them were international people. Most of them were Congolese people working in the, in the team. But yeah, you're not going to, if I use brashness or directness, as you, as you called it, I'm going to lose that audience straight away because the cultural divide is also different. But also in, in that when you're talking with senior politicians, you, you can't be direct. Quite often you have to sit there and you really have to work out the organizational requirements, but you also have to know your audience. You know, you, you, need, to do, you need to know exactly who you're dealing with and, and their position and their priorities. So when you're talking with the Minister of Health for the DRC, of course he wants to end this as quickly as he can. You need to be able to know what the common goal is, but know each of those individuals and what makes them tick. Do they have a different organizational priority? Do they have a different political priority? And then within that area of operations, we had differing tribes, is probably the way to put it, who currently right now are still at war. So you try to imagine putting those two people in a room, you've automatically got a bit of uh, distrust and you have to get their trust before you can actually get them into the room to for them to then actually sit down and, and talk and that you know trust goes back to, to to leadership as well of course you know and the next thing is you have to listen to their worries and then build on that trust and through listening that's how you start getting results are you a better listener now than you were say five ten years ago extremely yeah look the the united nations has a totally different culture than the QFES and of course here I'm only a small player in a in a massive organization this is the biggest United Nations mission in the world and the fire unit my unit is only a small player in in the whole organization and I still see myself as client orientated and providing a service but you have to listen to so many different units uh, so many different people and, and again we talk about those priorities because the priority of people that are tasked with protecting the, the population of the country aren't really worried about fire safety. But again, that's my passion. That's my role. So you have to be able to negotiate and influence your stakeholders as well to say, yeah, of course I see your, your point, but I'm, I'm here to support you. And you can only get there if you listen to the underlying tone as well and, and, and seeing why, why these people are, you know, where they're coming from and what they're trying to achieve in an incredibly complex environment. Yeah, and I would understand the, uh, that, that the level of complexity would be enormous at times. Let's let me turn this around now. We, we've talked about you know, relating to external stakeholders or, or other uh, partners in the, in the situation. Just now looking back into your team, what's some of the things that you'd say to people listening to this podcast 
in terms of how you best relate to your team, what you've learned along the way, and particularly as you moved up to become a more senior person, what things you've had to maybe you know, square away in your mind in terms of how you lead your team? That goes back into, and my, even my fire unit is a very complex yeah, microorganism. So the first thing I really had to do, Andrew, was understand the challenges that all, all of my staff face. I mean, you know, there's a huge mortality rate in this city, in this country. There's a huge poverty rate in this country. And anyone that's luckily, luckily employed full time have a cultural requirement to look after their, those that are less fortunate than them in their family. So, you know, you get a phone call at midnight saying, boss, I'm not coming to work now. In Australia, we'd say, why? Um, but here you have the why will normally be followed with because someone's sick, someone's got malaria, someone's dead, someone's got this. So you couldn't manage how we would in a very regimented way back at QFES. You have to be very understanding. So I, I spent a lot of, lot of time getting to know my people really in the background first. So their family situation, their their personal problems, their their you know, their worries, their goals and their dreams, of course. But then if I knew what was what they were worried about, I could then manage them to to perform as best as they can when they're when they're at work. And that again comes back to the to the trust and, and listening and communication. My next step then was to make them professionally better. And that comes through, as you know, you know, uh, yeah. with training, with ta confidence, it, yeah, with skills. And, and it takes time. Yeah, it takes time. Yeah. But, but you've got to do it. Yeah. Yeah. And, and you do. You need, you need to do it. But the, the, the next thing we've done is I, I built pride in themselves as firefighters in the unit collaboratively. And you, you see the, the, the cream rising to the top. And then I've given them more responsibility and I've given more opportunity for training and for study. And currently we're trying to work through Joyf, who you mentioned before, to, to actually offer some of these guys some uh, scholarships for further training. You know, so it, it's, but what it's done to, to these guys is show them that, A, I've kept my word, which I gave them at the start, which was when I came back was, I'm gonna build you a better fire unit. But now I've, I've sort of let the reins off a bit and let them have a bit more freedom. And that point, Jason, I think goes to, and I keep listening, sitting here listening to you, uh, I keep coming back to the word trust. You know, you, yeah. you've worked really hard to uh, develop a relationship with your external stakeholders and the people you've got to deal with and negotiate with. And then you've just spoken about you, how you've worked really hard to personally support your team and then understand what their professional needs are. It's, it's quite interesting because I still see people who have a belief that, yeah, there's a real clear boundary that you really don't need to know what is happening in people's lives as long as they come to work and do their job. But you're saying that, you know, that your experience has been that it's much broader than that. So is it, have I got that right? Yeah, I agree totally, Andrew. And, and you know, we have to talk about the, the real meaning of, of team. But if, if you, I've found over the last couple of years, and it's hard to compare and, and uh, we'll talk about that later, but it's hard to compare Australian professional firefighters versus these guys because we don't have, we don't face these challenges back home. But if, if, you know their if you know your team and their goals and their ambitions, you can build on that. 
And that's where the trust comes and then that's where the, their pride builds. I mean, the Congolese are very, very resilient people, very proud people. But when they do, when they achieve, the pride is, is remarkable. You know, so yeah. I, I go back to knowing my team because my team must come first, you know, and then when, when, you've, when you've got them there, when the chips are down, they will back you up. You know, we respond to some massive fires with sometimes a minimum crew of two and it can take hours for, for the rest of the, the whole unit to respond. And those guys are looking at you to not only lead but to keep them safe. And I have walked away from fires, unfortunately, because we haven't had the resources. And then you explain to them later on that they were more valuable than that building. Yeah. And there, yeah. that builds the trust again, you know. Great points. And, uh, and you're right, we could talk about lots of different things in, in terms of the, the role that you and your team uh, have to perform. Just in terms of time, I want to move now into the, uh, the final phase of our chat, which is about the, the, the five standard questions that I yeah. ask people who come on, on these podcasts with me. And we might move into that. The first question is, uh, Jason, what do you wish you really understood? Well, and I mentioned this before, Andrew, but it, it's I still struggle even at you know, 25, 27 years in, in the job, um, conflicting priorities between you know, what we do, which is life safety, and, and like I said before, the, the conflicting priorities of other areas. And I sometimes bang my head against the wall and say, but my job's keeping you safe. And, um, you know, that's, that's always one thing, but you have to wrap up the political dynamic and, and the overall mission of the organization here. So, you know, I'm coming to terms with that, but I, I wish I understood that earlier. And it's something that reminds me of this notion that we have to work in the gray, you know, so often. Yes. And I imagine you're working in more gray than you've ever worked in your life. Yeah, it's, it goes, again, talking about leadership, but here you have to find another mentor that can understand. Back home, I have five or six that I can contact any time. You know, but to get that clarity here sometimes in a, in a real-time environment is quite difficult. I imagine it would be. This, the second question, if we could, Jason, what yep. do you wish that other people understood about you? And that was a difficult question, Andrew, that you know, I actually spent a lot of time reflecting on. And you mentioned it before, like the fact that I was quite direct. I think a lot of times I got to, people have to understand that my directness comes from that passion. But as I've said, I've learned, especially over the last four years, that it's a tool, but it's normally a tool that's well left in the toolbox most of the time. <laughs> but it's a tool that you can still draw upon if you need to. Yes, that's exactly right. Yes. Yeah, and yeah. everything, okay. everything um, you've learned over your whole life should be a tool. It should be. I agree. Um, the third question is, what type of leader do you prefer? Now that you've you know, been in the sector for so long, what type of leader do you prefer? Well, you know, that, and this is going to be a generic answer, but I think the first thing is uh, the honesty. And then from honesty, the trust builds. You know, leaders have to be flexible, especially in an environment like this. Um, but, but I think the role of a leader is to always identify and develop the next leader, and and that's that's what I really that is still is a passion for me, and that's one of the main reasons I came back here. Yeah, I, I, in the word I when people speak of these things, the word I come to is legacy. That you know, there's, yes. there's there's a there's going to be time after us after we're finished after we've gone after maybe we're, after we've finished our lives. It's life goes on, and I think I think that's a wonderful philosophy to have, Jason. In respect 
to your own leadership development and knowing what you know now, what advice would you give to the younger version of yourself? Yeah, look, there's two really th two important things that jump out there uh, for me. I wish I had started reading a lot broader topics earlier because I yep. really realized how much I don't know about things. And when you sit in meetings with, again, senior politicians and ambassadors and they start talking about things that I actually, to be honest, don't know anything about, you feel a bit, a bit left out. So I wish, you know, when I was, before I even started becoming a station officer, I wish I had broadened my knowledge and I, I wish I had read more because that's when you realize what you don't know. Yeah, and I, I feel that way too. Even, even though I'm an avid reader now, I do wish I'd started a long time ago. Jason, the fifth and final question, how do you, and, and I imagine you have this at least semi-regularly uh, where you've got to deliver bad news to one of your team. How do you approach that? Look, it's, it's got to be given face-to-face, -face, Andrew. There, there's no other methodology, and it doesn't matter, um, unfortunately, if it's personal bad news or professional bad news. It, it's got to be done face-to-face, -face, but it's got to be done with empathy. It's got to be done with kindness. You've got to explain to the, especially in the professional you know, way, why they're having that meeting, where, they've, where they need to improve, but then you also have to give them a bit of hope and, and say, but this is what we're going to do together for you to improve. Unfortunately, the personal bad news, you know, there's just no other way to deliver it than face to face. You know, there's an old saying that bad news doesn't get, uh, doesn't age well. Um, <laughs> it doesn't and, age and well. I love, that, I love that expression. Yeah. I'll, yeah. I'll yeah. Be and, and, you know, it is an unfortunate part of my role, but that, that's, that's what we have to do as, as leaders, as managers, but also as a human. And then you have to be there and stand beside that person, no matter, again, if it's personal or professional. But I will say this, don't ever promise anyone something you can't deliver. So especially on the personal side, you know, you just can't do it. What wonderful, wonderful advice, Jason. The notion of leadership and, and there's a, a view, I think it was a Tony Blair comment where he talked about the art of leadership is being able to say no when you need to say no and how that saying yes is very easy, but it's the, the moments when you've got to say no, which become tough. Thank you for those answers. Just wanted to uh, wrap up here and, and because we've talked about trust throughout this discussion and certainly given that many leaders and one that pops to my mind is uh, Colin Powell, the, the former um, uh, American uh, general who went on to become Secretary of State, uh, he yes. had he had the had the view that trust is central, and in his words, where trust is the essence of leadership. What can you just provide a final your final uh, comment or views on trust, just so we can wrap up? Trust is for me personally, Andrew. It's yeah, you, know, you have your morals, ethics, and beliefs. I think trust is up there with those because if you break that, you've broken your morals and you've broken your ethics. You can't build trust and then just cut it when it when it doesn't suit you it's trust is money in the bank wonderful wonderful well look that that brings us to the end mate and i've got i've got to say something to you it's been really proud for me to watch you your watch your career go on in in a totally different world to to where you started and it's been wonderful mate and i know that oh, it's easy for me to say that and I, I don't get to see the tough times that you've been through but you know there's a lot of people in our organization who wish you well 
for you know the service that you're providing now to an international international community so thank you very much i look forward to uh, actually seeing you face to face again one day when, when you're back in australia or when i'm somewhere else but uh, regardless it'd be really good to catch up yeah mate that'd be great and thanks for the kind words you know i don't know when i'll be getting home i was actually invited to speak at a conference at the gold coast i think it's in october it's not going to happen the country's closed yep Good on you. Look forward to meeting you and um, have a great day. Th again, thank you for your time, Jason. Thanks, Andrew. Thanks very much and goodbye.